Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests of honor, it's a great treat for me to be here with this impressive list of outstanding achievers and this marvelous group of young people from all over America. They, more than anything, give me great hope for the future not only of our country, but of mankind. I know that they're all about to embark upon various careers and artists are at a stage where they have to make decisions about choices of university courses and majors and professions or lifetime occupations. Let me tell you how I got into my life work. I was born in Istanbul, Turkey, some 60 odd years ago. My father was a young international lawyer who uh, uh, was legal advisor to the architect of the modern Turkish Republic, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, during the Turkish Revolution and thereafter. In uh, 1925, he was made Turkish ambassador to Switzerland and delegate to the League of Nations, and then ambassador to France, Great Britain, and finally to the United States. I grew up in all those countries, living in embassies, going to schools, and being exposed to the cultures of different lands. This had advantages and drawbacks. Uh, my father was a very scholarly, philosophical person who was not much interested in music or the fine arts, but more interested in the well-being of poor people around the world and the fate of nations. My mother, on the other hand, was a singer, a natural musician played by ear, keyboards, guitars. We had a lot of music in our house. She bought all the current records of whatever countries we were in, and she adapted herself to all the musics of different places. And of course, even in the 20s and the 30s, American music was available in most European countries and countries around the world because jazz music had already made its inroads. And as a young boy, I heard among a lot of pap or pop music or pap music or whatever you want to call it, some good jazz music, some strains of black music which had infiltrated the pop music of that time. My ear had become a little bit accustomed to that, but uh, I led the normal life of the son of a diplomat in all these countries. And at this point, at the point that I was going to college in America, you would not, I was very high, highly unlikely uh, rock and roller of the future. But uh, you, the things that really changed my life were, when we were in London, my older brother, who was a great influence on me and taught me almost everything I know, took me to the London Palladium to hear Cab Calloway's band and then the following year, Duke Ellington. So this, I was in 1932 and 33, 34. 
I was uh, 10 years old, or nine or 10. What unforgettable moments those were in my life because I had never seen a jazz orchestra. I'd heard some of these records, but the records were nothing like what I heard in person. Those big, beautiful black men in white tail suits with gleaming brass instruments were just, just to look at them was such an impressive thing for me. And when they started to play, the volume and this power of the brass and the reeds and the horns and the propelling incredible rhythm of the drums just absolutely captivated me. I, uh, I was, uh, from that moment on, I was hooked on jazz. Uh, when my father was made ambassador to Washington, to the United States, my parents were very upset because it was so far away from home. In those days, travel was very difficult. It took five or six days to go from Turkey to America and uh, sometimes much longer. And uh, it just seemed so far away. I, on the other hand, was beside myself. I was so happy that I was going to the land of dreams, cowboys and Indians, Chicago gangsters, New York and 42nd Street. I'd just seen that in the movies. And New Orleans and most of all, jazz. Uh, It was uh, in Washington, when we first arrived there, it was a bitter blow to find that there was no jazz, at least not in any of the record shops that I first went to. There was very little jazz, very, very little appreciation of jazz. There was almost no availability of blues. And uh, my brother and I decided to wander around and. We knew there was somewhere, and we befriended some people who were jazz fans and authorities, Alan Lomax at the Library of Congress. We started to go to the black ghetto, the Harlem of Washington. We found record shops there that did have blues and jazz, and a lot of it. And then we also found that we could go collecting around in the, going from house to house and asking them if that old records for sale, and we pick up Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong Hot Five records, and we amassed a collection of some 20,078 RPM jazz records that we listened to incessantly, cataloged, uh, made up discographies, wrote letters, found out who played on them, analyzed the styles of the players, and my brother and I eventually became sort of jazz critics in our teenage years and jazz was our consuming passion. At the same time, I was going to college. I graduated from St. John's College in 1940, studying liberal arts and philosophy. Uh, I was meant to become a diplomat or a public servant, like my father and my grandfathers, and to go back to Turkey. But I soon began to think that I really loved jazz and blues too much to leave it. 
and we had been, uh, Washington was a Jim Crow city in 1938 and 39 and 40, and it was a totally Jim Crow city. It was uh, a total separation of the races. Uh, Benny Carter, whom we'd known in Europe, was a great saxophone player, came to Washington. We couldn't find a restaurant that we could go to. Uh, black people were not allowed in theaters and anywhere for that matter. Um, we became great friends with Sterling Brown, who taught at Howard University. Uh, Dr. Thomas Williston, who was a great friend of Duke Ellington's and Teddy Wilson's, and at whose house we spent many evenings with a professor of medicine at Howard. Uh, we had a group of people, people who were sort of through jazz, were also fighting segregation in Washington. We had jam sessions every Sunday at the Turkish Embassy, something that had never been done in any diplomatic. Uh, it shocked everybody, but you know, we did have nice lunches on Sunday afternoon. Most of the bands played Saturday night, one-nighters. Sunday they were off, and they'd come to the Turkish Embassy, would have, on occasion, people like Lester Young and uh, Buck Clayton and, uh, and Johnny Hodges and whoever was in town would come in and drop in, and we'd have his incredible jam sessions. And we had held the first public jam sessions, which had mixed audiences and mixed orchestra. We, uh, in, the, in the style of the uh, John Hammond uh, uh, Spirituals to Swing concert at Carnegie Hall. And we duplicated that. We had our first, well, we had several jam sessions. And uh, the first place that we could find that would allow the first hall we could rent, uh, Constitution Hall was not would not allow mixture of races. Uh, we got the Jewish Community Center uh, to allow us to put on a mixed concert. Then we got the National Press Club relented and let us have mixed groups on the stage and mixed uh, audiences. And uh, it's incredible to think today that it was very recently that this was the case from Washington on down south. Uh, thank God we're past all of that. But going through all of that, I became more and more attached to the idea of uh, the music itself and the, and the blues. And uh, instead, at a certain point in my life, I decided, well, I'm not going to go back to Turkey and I'm not going to go into diplomatic service, but I have to do something with the music. And uh, at any rate, I borrowed $10,000 from my dentist, and <laughs> who was the only person who would le uh, lend it to me. Uh, I had a friend who, uh, Herb Abramson, who uh, was a uh, medical student at NYU, and he had been a part-time A&R person. Uh, working for a small independent label, National Records. We started Atlantic Records. On a, I got a little suite in a rundown hotel on 56th Street called the Jefferson Hotel. I slept in one bedroom, and the living room was our first office. And uh, before we knew it, we were selling records. It was, we started in 1947, but we released our first records in 1948. Uh, I'm running short on time. I have a lot more to tell you, but I just want to tell you very quickly that
that uh, it was partly through luck, but partly through love and dedication and loving the, my subject, which was music, and knowing about it, that I was able to survive. Uh, I was doing something which I loved, loved doing. Most of my competitors were doing something to make money. And those, many of them did make money, but not for long. Uh, we stuck to it because we loved it. We were fans and we loved the music and that was our avocation, our life work. Uh, in, in doing this work, at first I thought I would just like the music, but you know, promotion and sales and uh, merchandising was not especially interesting for me, but I began to like that too. I began to like everything about the music and it was a great challenge and it's fun to do something that you really love because you can work at it endless hours and it's not like work. To do something you hate or you bo that bores you is very tedious and uh, in life, the important thing is to find a, 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 an occupation which is one which is very important to you and that you love, li like to dedicate yourself to. Uh, I'm going to come quickly to the end of this. Uh, the, the one thing I would like to tell the young people here is that happiness is the key word. That is what human beings strive for the most, according to every philosopher since Plato and Aristotle. And your choice of careers is, should be what makes you happy. A person who is curious about any subject will a, find great satisfaction by studying that subject and becoming a great scholar at it. Different people have to find what each one of them like best. Uh, money should not be a main criterion because if you're good at what you do, money, power, or recognition somehow unfailingly follow. You can be the, but whatever you are, try to be the best of everything. The best carpenter, the best chemist, the best financier on Wall Street, the best guitarist, the best union leader, the best statesman, politician. Being good is a reward in itself. And I would like, in closing, to, uh, to uh, mention that not everybody is a great success, as many of the people you see here. But also in life, being a great success is not the main thing. The main thing in life, of course, is to be a good person and be a good person, a person of goodwill, and a good citizen. And that in itself, that is the greatest reward. Thank you very much.